Well, good evening. Welcome back. Uh, we're on lecture number 10. Uh, so in our pilgrimage, uh, we are about us, I don't know, we are, we are 10 out of 60-something, and, uh, and that may, may grow. And uh, we are looking at the doctrine of God, and we've been looking uh, in particular, and will be for a number of weeks to come, two or three more weeks on the attributes of God. And uh, tonight uh, we have the three, uh, the three omnis, uh, omnipresent, omnipotent, and omniscient, uh, all present or everywhere present, and all powerful and all knowing. And I've cited a text uh, right on page one, uh, a very definitive text uh, in Romans 11. Paul, after he has uh, spoken of uh, God's electing and predestinating uh, purposes, an aspect, of course, of God's omnipotence and omniscience, for sure, uh, then explodes, as it were, at the end of chapter 11 with the doxology. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom And knowledge of God, his ways are past finding out. Uh, And uh, and then who has uh, uh, from him, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. And that uh, provides me, I think, with an opportunity uh, to pause for a minute uh, in our studies uh, and remind ourselves that the purpose of all study and the purpose of all Theology, the purpose of all intellectual knowledge, uh, is to enable us to glorify God. We glorify Him with our bodies, but we also glorify Him with our minds by thinking His thoughts after Him, by searching the Scriptures, that in understanding we are men, as uh, one translation uh, renders a certain part of Scripture. Uh, We're going to be thinking tonight about... um, The immensity of God, and uh, one of the things we're going to talk about is the uh, omnipresence of God, that God is present uh, everywhere. Uh, And again, I I cite this this prayer of uh, Rosemary Jensen, Uh, Lord, you know the way that I take, forgive me for not resting in that. You know my future and will lead me where I need to go, forgive me for not resting in that. You also know my sins and have covered me with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Forgive me for not thanking you every day for that. Now let's turn the page and uh, let's begin the first of the three omnis, uh, omnipresence. And uh, omnipresence and omnipotence, these, are, these two are fairly, fairly straightforward. Uh, omniscience will... Uh, will send us into deeper waters uh, in a a few minutes. But let's begin with uh, omnipresence. We said last time um, that God is eternal uh, and that the eternity of God uh, we think of in two ways. One with regard to time, uh, which we covered last week. uh, And in regard to time, we said God is everlasting in the sense that he is timeless. Um, a notion that is sometimes called eternalism rather than uh, God being uh, existing in unending time, uh, a notion that is sometimes referred to as temporalism. 
So the everlasting nature of God uh, in, a, in a timeless existence, uh, we, we made the point last week that space and time uh, are intimately related to each other. Uh, we speak of the space-time continuum. Um, space and time uh, are um, aspects of God's creation, uh, and God is outside of creation. Uh, there is a distinction between God and creation. Now tonight, uh, we're thinking again of God as eternal, but this time uh, in relationship to space rather than time, uh, so that God is everywhere present. Uh, the way the Westminster Confession uh, addresses this, uh, it addresses it using one word uh, in its uh, second chapter as it expounds on the doctrine of God, and, and it's not saying anything new. This isn't a particularly um, reformed doctrine or a Puritan doctrine. Uh, this is uh, part of the traditional of doctrine from uh, the church uh, patriarchs and fathers, uh, from Augustine through uh, Thomas Aquinas and uh, the Roman Catholic Church, uh, right through to the Reformation. There is no change here on certain aspects, and uh, this, is, uh, this is true here. God is immense. God is immense. Uh, an attempt to grasp something of the expansive nature of God, that God, God is everywhere. Now let's uh, pick up some scriptures and one that's very familiar, Psalm 139. Uh, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Uh, there is nowhere. Uh, in the vastness of this cosmos, that uh, God is not present. Uh, and I often think of uh, Yuri Gagarin, I think it was, in Sputnik, who went up into space in the 1960s and under the uh, old uh, Soviet uh, communist regime and looked out of his uh, little window and said he couldn't see God. And uh, God was in Sputnik. Uh, not just outside of the little window of his spacecraft. God is everywhere. Or in 1 Kings 8.27, but will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, uh, this is of course uh, the, the statement at the, uh, at the consecration of the temple, uh, Solomon's temple. Uh, will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Now, there is something of a tension that we need to think about because we do think sometimes and we do speak sometimes of God being specifically present and sometimes we speak of it in terms of uh, our experience and we feel his presence and uh, sometimes we feel his absence. Uh, we, we need to talk about that in a minute. But uh, in actual fact, God is present whether we feel him uh, to be present uh, or not. God is everywhere present, cannot be contained uh, within something like uh, a temple or a church building. Uh, or Jeremiah 23, am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? Uh, you can't, in that sense, run away from uh, God, as uh, Jonah uh, found out much to his uh, consternation. 
Uh, Or Paul in Athens uh, in Acts 17, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. And then then he goes on to cite this, uh, this statement, in him we live and move and have our being. Well, we need to explore that. Uh, the testimony of Scripture is clear enough. God is everywhere present. There isn't a, uh, there isn't a place that you can run and hide and be, and be absent from God. Uh, God will find you wherever you are. Uh, but we need to think about that now theologically, and I uh, have a number of things I want us to, to think about and, uh, and cogitate a little. Uh, we should not think of this uh, as though God... Um, fills all spaces uh, in, in the sense that, uh, that God, uh, in the same sense that we spoke last week about God being inside and outside of time. That may not be the best way to speak about it, but God doesn't have a physical body. Uh, so we shouldn't think of his uh, spatial presence, his uh, omnipresence, his presence everywhere in spatial terms. Um, And so sometimes we do say he exists outside of space and time. And and, uh, in in saying that, we are almost automatically saying that that there is a space in which God is not present. Uh, He's not not contained or restrained by space. Uh, So I'm not not, uh, convinced that the language of inside and outside is perhaps the best way of describing it. Uh, Let me put it in a different way. Let's uh, try and explore this. And what we're talking about, of course, at the end of the day is um, incomprehensible. You have no more grasp of eternity than uh, the man in the moon. Uh, It's very difficult for us to imagine what it is we're talking about here. Um, uh, Let me put it this way. There are no dead zones. Uh, my wife is uh, on the phone today, and uh, it's, it's all gobbledygook. And uh, I can hear one word, and then four or five words that are just a complete blur, and then, and then it's gone. And I know what she's going to say. I, I dropped the call. And I'm saying, she dropped the call. Uh, she was traveling somewhere in uh, northeast uh, Colombia where AT&T, if there are any representatives, AT&T are poorly represented, let me say. Uh, and especially in my house, of all things. Um, but there are no dead zones. There are no dropped calls anywhere in space that God cannot be reached or that God cannot reach us, where God cannot come to us. He is present everywhere. Uh, God is present in spirit. Uh, everywhere in the totality of uh, of who he is and what he is. So his presence is his presence as God. God in, in all of his attributes, God in the way that he is, God in the totality of his being. It's not a part of him or an aspect of him or, his, or one attribute is present and not another attribute. He is present in all of his totality. Uh, all of his attributes are present everywhere. God has no parts. Remember we, we spoke about that two or three weeks ago. Uh, under the rubric of uh, what's sometimes called the simplicity of God. Uh, We speak of this uh, in terms of the role and function of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is present. 
So Paul, for example, in uh, 1 Corinthians 3 and again in chapter 6, speaks of the Spirit dwelling in us in such a way that we are temples of the Holy Spirit in just the same way that God manifested his presence in some kind of localized form uh, in the Shekinah glory in the temple so that so that you could say under the old covenant God was present in the temple although in another aspect in terms of his transcendence he is present he is present everywhere um, Don't you know that you are the temples of the Holy Spirit? You remember, of course, how Paul uh, employs that in uh, 1 Corinthians 6 when he's addressing the issue of of, uh, prostitution, of all things, Uh, of uh, visiting uh, visiting, uh, a a place of ill repute and... uh, and Paul addresses it uh, very, very uh, starkly. Um, if, if you haven't read 1 Corinthians 6 of late, yeah, it's, it's shocking what Paul says. Uh, don't, you, don't you realize that, uh, that when you go to these uh, places, Paul is saying, in effect, you take the Holy Spirit with you. Uh, you take God with you. You can't leave him outside the door. Uh, you can't commit your sin and then pick up God on the way out. God is everywhere. And if you're a Christian, he, he indwells you. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And then we need to think of the presence of God in, uh, in the terms of the incarnation. We're thinking of the incarnation of, uh, of Jesus. Uh, something that's anticipated in the Old Testament in various uh, forms uh, like the pillar of cloud and of fire and the Shekinah glory and uh, the concept of the temple uh, in the Old Testament. All these are local manifestations in some form of, uh, of God. But when we come to the incarnation, we have, um, we have a very uh, unique, uh, an, an altogether unique feature that... Um, God is present everywhere, and yet the second person of the Trinity is also present in one place, in a very specific place. Um, when we think of the incarnation, when we think of uh, what happens in the incarnation, you have, you have two natures, the divine nature of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, and then you have the human nature of Jesus. And the human nature of Jesus can only be in one place at one time. It only has one zip code. It can't be in Bethlehem and Columbia at the same time. It can't be in Columbia and Nazareth at the same time. So the, the human body of Jesus, whether it's the incarnate body or whether it's the glorified human body of Jesus that is now at the right hand of God, only has one zip code. It is somewhere. It has a localized presence. Uh, that became a, a, a bit of an issue in the Reformation, particularly with Luther and perhaps more so with followers of Luther, Lutheranism, uh, in what is called uh, sometimes uh, the ubiquity uh, issue in the Lord's Supper, that, uh, that in the Supper the body of Jesus uh, is, is in some way or other in, with, by, under uh, the bread. Uh, that something happens, uh, hoc est corpus meum, hocus pocus, abracadabra, uh, the bread becomes the body of Jesus in, in some form, not quite in the form of uh, Roman Catholic teaching of transubstantiation, but, but in Lutheranism there was a localized presence of the body of Jesus in some form or capacity. And that's a problem, that's a problem not so much with the Lord's Supper, it's certainly a problem with the Lord's Supper, but it's a problem in Christology because the body of Jesus 
for it to be a human body can only be present in one place. Now that, that body of Jesus is in union, you, you following? That body of Jesus is in union with a divine nature, but there's only one he. There's only one him. The second person of the Trinity who has two natures. So there's a sense in which in the divine nature of Jesus, he is everywhere present, and in his human nature, he is only present in one place at one time. And so in uh, the incarnation, you have a specific representation of how God is present everywhere, and yet present only in one specific location. Jesus becomes present in another form by the Holy Spirit. I will go away, but I will come to you again, he says uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the upper room. So God is locally present in Jesus. Uh, he was everywhere, and yet at the same time he was specifically in Bethlehem, or Jerusalem, or Nazareth, or by a well in Samaria. So, uh, on the top of page four, uh, I think I've already spoken uh, about most of that. Let's go down to pastoral uh, considerations, pastoral considerations uh, of the uh, omnipresence of Jesus. Because there are experiential dimensions to the presence of God. God is present everywhere, but... uh, uh, we, we, we do speak um, of God being near to us. And sometimes we speak of God being very near to us. And sometimes we speak of God being far away. Um, so uh, James 4.8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now in a sense God is always present, whether you feel him near or not. Even when you're sinning against him, God is near. Um, but there's a there's a there's a, an experiential dimension of the fellowship, the, the, the covenantal fellowship, which involves the promises of God that he has made in covenant in Christ and in the gospel uh, as part and parcel of this uh, statement of James, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Uh, sometimes... Uh, just so, uh, you know, we, we, we experience that in, uh, in everyday life. Sometimes you can be sitting right next to somebody and you think they're far away. You're talking to them and uh, they appear to be far away. There's something in their eyes. Uh, they're, they're, they've just drifted off. They're right next to you, but they're not with you. They're far away and you have to, you have to say something to get their attention. Are you listening? Focus. You know, look at my eyes. Um, revival. Uh, some of these uh, wonderful prayers, uh, Psalm 144, just one example. Uh, Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Uh, God is present everywhere. God is omnipresent. And yet we, uh, we pray, don't we, that God would come down. He would rend the heavens and come down. He'd come down and, uh, and, and show himself near by doing certain things, by reviving us, quickening us. Bringing us to repentance, uh, making Jesus more wonderful to us, giving us zeal, uh, giving us a sense of corporate fellowship in the body of Christ, uh, converting hundreds, thousands, uh, all, at, all at once. Uh, the presence of God. When you, uh, when you read um, 
Uh, when you read historical accounts of revival uh, in uh, the 18th or 19th century, very often the language that is used of those revivals is God was, was present. There was, a, there was a felt presence. Now, he's, he's present every, everywhere. There, there isn't a zip code in which uh, God is not present. And yet there's a felt presence. There's a powerful presence. Uh, there's a, a presence with intent, and there's a, a, a presence with a specific purpose. Uh, and uh, revival, and the prayer for revival, is a prayer for God to make himself uh, uh, present in a, in, a, in, a, in a very specific way. Uh, or corporate worship in 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, this is Paul addressing the issue of um, tongues and prophecy. And he lays down very specific uh, instruction uh, um, that, uh, for example, with tongues, uh, if there's no interpreter present, uh, y- y- I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, you have to shut up. Uh, he puts it much more delicately than that, but that's basically what Paul is saying. I mean, even if you feel the urge, I, I, I feel the urge, I've got, I've, I've, got to, I've got to speak in tongues. And Paul says, if there's no interpreter, you can't do it. Right? You've got to sit down, be quiet, wait till next week. Uh, prophecy. He says two, at most three. And what if you're number four? I've got a prophecy. Paul says, you sit down, be quiet. Next week. Because otherwise, he says, uh, with respect to tongues, if people start speaking in foreign languages, and I understand my understanding of tongues in Corinth is that they're the same kind of tongues as as Pentecost, and they're they're foreign languages rather than than some ecstatic, angelic uh, prayer language or something like that. But but in any case, whatever comes out of your mouth doesn't make any sense. And if there's an unbeliever present, how will they know that that God is among you? And look at what he says. Uh, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. And you've had uh, folk, uh, some, some of you have said on a Sunday morning, um, you've been listening to Dr. Ferguson preaching, and uh, as he's been preaching on, uh, say, the emotional life of our Lord. And you've come away and you've, and you've said, God was present this morning. In, in, and of course, God, you, know, you, you can be clever and you can say, well, God is always present. Don't you believe in the omnipresence of God? It's a fundamental Christian doctrine. And yet there's a sense in which you feel the presence of God. When everything seems to come together and you are transported almost to another place. And, and, and you sense almost with, uh, with, in a way that goes beyond explanation that you are with the church triumphant above and you're praising God and the things of this world have grown strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Uh, this, uh, this doctrine produces uh, fearlessness. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for... Uh, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. The presence of God uh, when you're surrounded by uh, enemies, trials and uh, tribulations, and it produces uh, fearlessness because God is with you. I was uh, bullied in school. Uh, if, uh, if your young people are bullied, bring them to me. I can, I can relate to it. Uh, I remember being bullied in school. 
Uh, I like classical music. That was, I was up for it. I, was, I had a target written all over me. Um, you know, I, I was into Beethoven and Schubert, and you know, that was it. And uh, my older brother was not definitely not into Beethoven or Schubert, and, uh, but he, he was my older brother. He was four years older than me. And you know, when you're 13 and he's almost 18, that's a big difference. And uh, yeah, when he was around, I had no fear. Uh, and for a couple of months or so, uh, he would make himself present in certain contexts that I was having difficulty in. He would just show up. He would just uh, show up. And uh, fear went away because my bigger brother, older brother, the one who went to the army and, you know, he was that kind. And uh, that's what David is saying in Psalm 23. Uh, or sin, and I've already spoken about this, and uh, just read that text. It's, uh, it's, uh, it should make you shudder. Or contextualize it into 2012 when you look at pornography on the screen of your laptop or computer don't think for one minute that God isn't there he's looking straight back at you that's what 1 Corinthians 6 uh, 15 is saying or God's absence Um, you know these plaintive uh, cries from the Psalms uh, why O Lord do you stand far away why do you hide yourself in time of trouble or Job why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy uh, God, God is present everywhere, and yet you can feel him to be absent. He can, uh, he can withhold uh, the language uh, of the Westminster Confession. Uh, he can withhold the light of his countenance from you for a season. Right? He can be right beside you, and yet he can make you think he's far away for a season. To make you want him more. To make you want him more. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. Uh, And then future nearness. Um, There's an eschatological dimension to the omnipresence of God because uh, we have this wonderful description at the end of uh, Revelation. uh, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And this... uh, This beautiful picture at the end of Revelation in the new heavens and new earth, the uh, covenantal uh, felt presence of God in a a way that that escalates and goes beyond anything that we've yet uh, experienced and something something to look forward to. Well, omnipotence. Second omni, omnipotence. God has the power to do everything that is in accord with his rational and moral perfection. Uh, And we sometimes think of the omnipotence of God in specific areas in creation, providence, redemption, judgment, and so on. And uh, we'll come back to some of those later. Uh, I'm thinking here of the question in the child's catechism, can God do all things? Yes, God can do all his holy will. That's a, that's a brilliant answer, by the way. Instead of answering the question, yes, God can do all things, which possibly would not be true, um, because there are some things God can't do. God cannot lie. God cannot uh, deny uh, himself. Uh, but let's, uh, before, I'm jumping ahead, let's look at some scripture. Uh, Psalm 18, I love 
I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. How many words do you want here? Uh, uh, the psalmist has swallowed the thesaurus uh, here. He is, uh, he is just, uh, just completely bowled over by the idea of God's omnipotence. Uh, God is our refuge and strength, the Reformation Psalm. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Or the King James Version, uh, I like this uh, rendition of uh, Revelation 19.6, the Lord God omnipotent. Uh, reigneth. Uh, I love that introduction of the word omnipotent into the King James uh, Bible. Uh, Pantocrator uh, in Greek. Now let's, uh, let's reflect on this uh, theologically. Um, as I began to say, this, uh, the doctrine of God's omnipotence is not that God can do anything. Now there was a there was a concept in medieval times. Uh, Calvin skates around it. Uh, there are some scary sentences in Calvin, uh, a couple of scary sentences in his sermons on Job, for example, that seem to suggest that God has what's known as absolute power. That God can do uh, 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 anything that He wills. So in other words, it's putting the will of God as the primary aspect of God. The prime the primary thing in God is his will, so that if he wills it, uh, he can do it. But uh, I I think a safer place is to uh, back away from that and to say um, that God cannot act contrary to his nature. Uh, He cannot act contrary to his moral nature, so he cannot lie. He cannot deny himself. He cannot give up on his promises. What a blessed thought. When God makes a promise, he cannot break it. Uh, So God cannot lie or change his mind. God is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he he should change his mind. Uh, Numbers 23, 19. Well, let me me be a little more edgy. God cannot make a circular triangle. Now, you may want to debate that, and uh, I wish you well. Um, Because the notion is self-contradictory. Um... You know, the laws of uh, arithmetic and the laws of logic uh, actually reflect, I think, something of God's being. Um, You know, you won't get to heaven and find that 2 plus 2 actually equals 5. Well, you may want to reflect on that. Uh, Pastoral significance. Pastoral significance. Uh, When God wills to do something, no one can stop him. You know, uh, there's a famous sermon, and I'm speaking now off the top of my head. Um, Spurgeon has a sermon on Romans 8. You know, whom God hath foreknown, he also hath predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And whom he has predestined, them he also called. And whom he called, he justified, and we justified. He also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? And uh, uh, Spurgeon has a sermon that I think is called, There's No Stopping This God. There's no stopping this God. When he, when he begins something, when he wills to do it, nothing and no one. Uh, do you remember the questions in Romans 8? Who can separate us? 
Who can bring any charge against God's elect? No one and nothing and not even Satan, not even the powers of hell can stop God. That's how powerful he is. That's how resolute he is. Of course, uh, Sarah, uh, Sarah laughed at the thought of bearing a child uh, of her own. Um, to, which, to which the question was put, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Um, you remember how old Sarah was? We, we, we won't become personal. But do you remember how old she was? It's easy. Yeah. It's easy to... Uh, you can sympathize with Sarah. Because you would be in exactly the same place. You would laugh too. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Uh, even Satan is subject to God's sovereignty. The, the, the staggering uh, prologue in uh, Job, the first two chapters, when uh, God comes, uh, uh, there's a meeting between God and Satan, and, and Satan has to give an account of himself. Where have you been? And Satan says he's been wandering to and fro on the earth because he's a tramp. He's a vagabond. He's a tramp. He has nowhere to call home. He's wandering about all over the earth. And then, do you remember when, uh, when God gives him permission uh, to, uh, to, to, uh, to try uh, Job. Uh, God sets boundaries. You may, you may touch all that he has, but you, you cannot touch him. And then, and then in the second trial, remember, you may touch him, but you may not kill him. Who's in control here? It's not Satan. It's not uh, the, 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 the equal powers of good and evil. God is in control. God is omnipotent. He's even omnipotent over evil. Now that raises a billion questions, and some of the most difficult questions in all of philosophy and theology. Um, but scripture just merely, merely states the fact, God is absolutely and totally sovereign. Uh, or God's redemptive purposes will be fully accomplished. Uh, the, the Great Commission in Matthew 28, uh, all authority in heaven and earth. So what's left? Right, what, what is there apart from heaven and earth? Nothing. So all authority is given to me. This is King Jesus. This is the sovereign, omnipotent God speaking in Matthew 28, giving the Great Commission. Uh, or the, uh, the statement at Caesarea Philippi in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You can only make that statement from a position of Omnipotence. God is omnipotent. God is all powerful. Don't you love the doctrine of the omnipotence of God? Those of you who are in uh, trial, uh, those of you who said this week how difficult the week has been, and you're tried and tested, and uh, there are things that happen and things that will happen tomorrow or next week, and not one of them is outside of the total sovereignty and control of King Jesus. The doctrine of the omnipotence of God. Now, omniscience. Now, all of that was easy. You need to put your thinking caps on there for omniscience. Uh, God knows everything. He knows all that is knowable, whether actual or hypothetical, past, present, and future. Uh, some scriptures here. Uh, we won't read all of them, but uh, Psalm 33, the Lord looks down from heaven. 
He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. Uh, Psalm 147 and verse 5, which I didn't uh, write down uh, in the King James Version, says, His understanding is infinite. Psalm 147 and verse 5 in the King James. His understanding is infinite. Hebrews 4.13 And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Or 1 John 3.20 on page 9. He knows everything. He knows everything. He knows everything that is actual and he knows everything that is possible and hypothetical. All, all knowledge that is possible is known to him. Now let's, uh, let's reflect on that for a minute. Um, I, this, I came across this today. I, I, I'd forgotten about it. And uh, this, this extraordinary sentence in Augustine. Now tighten your seatbelts. Put your tray tables up and uh, your seats upright uh, because we're in for a bumpy ride. Wherefore, if the infinity of numbers cannot be infinite to the knowledge of God by which it is comprehended, what are we poor creatures that we should presume to fix limits to his knowledge and say that unless the same temporal thing be repeated by the same periodic revolutions, God cannot either foreknow his creatures that he may make them or know them when he has made them. God, whose knowledge is simply manifold and uniform in its variety, comprehends all incomprehensibles with so incomprehensible a comprehension that though he willed always to make his later works novel and unlike what went before them, he could not produce them without order and foresight, nor conceive them suddenly, but by his eternal foreknowledge." Now that's, a, that's just an extraordinary uh, statement that you need to read over and over and over and over. And it's uh, one sentence. Uh, and of course modern, uh, modern editors would cut it into uh, six or seven sentences, I'm sure. Uh, but just, uh, just dwell on, uh, try, try, and, try and dwell on what uh, Augustine is saying here. He's trying, of course, to describe something about the incomprehensible knowledge uh, that, is, uh, that is God's knowledge. Uh, let's reflect on it this way. God knows himself perfectly. He's not a mystery to himself. You know, your spouse, even though you may have been married to her for 40 years, is still a mystery to you. You know, there are things, there are things that go on in that little mind and you sort of wonder, where did that come from? <laughs> they can still surprise you. Um... God is, uh, you know, God doesn't need uh, counseling. You know, there are no hidden depths to the mind of God, to God himself. You know, God doesn't have, uh, I never thought about that. Well, who'd have thought it? You know, God doesn't have those moments. Uh, here's, a, here's, a, here's a little thought to think about. Uh, though the divine nature of Jesus is a mystery to his human nature. Right? 
The divine nature of Jesus is, is a mystery to his human nature. In that sense, Jesus is in awe of himself. Now there's something to think about. Um, here's another thought. God's knowledge is, is all at once. You know, our knowledge is discursive. We, we know things because we learn them. Actually, that's the way Jesus knew things in his human mind, pretty much, I think. He learned them. He studied the scriptures. He spent hours, I think, with his parents, with Mary and, uh, and with Joseph, learning the Old Testament scriptures, poring uh, over the prophecies with regard uh, to the Messiah, meditating, perhaps, uh, as he went to sleep at night on the servant songs of Isaiah, uh, plumbing their, their depths, but he learnt them in his human mind discursively. God knows everything um, all at once. Um, you know, uh, let me turn the page here. Does God know the future? Does God know the future? Now, Calvinists and Arminians, both of them, answer this question, yes, God knows the future, but they answer it from different points of view. Uh, and, and, and again, this is something we'll come back to in another place, but uh, Calvinists believe that God knows the future because he has determined the future. He has foreordained the future, whatsoever comes to pass. Nothing happens without God willing it to happen, without God willing it to happen in the way that it happens, without God willing it to happen before it happens. Arminians also believe that God knows the future because he can foresee, he can see down the corridors of time the free decisions that human beings make. So it's his foresight that enables him to know the future. Now omniscience, omniscience is a logical requirement of predictive prophecy. Right? You, can't, you, you can't have predictive prophecy, a prophecy about the coming of Messiah in the 7th or 8th century BC without knowing the future. Right? The, the certainty of the future is a necessary requirement for predictive prophecy to actually take place. If you're going to give a predictive, if God is going to give a predictive prophecy about something that's going to take place seven, eight hundred years into the future, that future has to be certain, that future has to be known. It shall come to pass, uh, the, the statement that precedes many a predictive uh, prophecy in the Old Testament. Um, God, knows, uh, God knows future contingent, that is, freely chosen events. Events that's, that are seemingly part of our free choice. Uh, free choice within our natures. You wore a green shirt tonight, very fetching. And you wore, um, what is that, chartreuse, whatever that color is, uh, orange, uh, pink, no, it's orange. Uh, but you chose that, that was a decision that you made. There were probably all kinds of shirts in the closet this morning and, uh, and, and you made a choice. Uh, in that sense, it was a contingent event, it was a, it was a free choice. And uh, God, knows, God knows in advance... Uh, because he has ordered all things, it's part of his decree, what are to us free contingent events. Now, modern open theists, uh, free will theists, uh, claim uh, 
to be uh, Arminian, but actually they are more Socinian. We'll come back to that later. Um, that God does not have exhaustive knowledge uh, of the future. Uh, He may have knowledge of the broad strokes because he can predict events because of patterns of behavior in certain circumstances in the past, but he cannot cannot be absolutely sure about about the future. Now, open theists are wanting to do several things, but one of the things that they want to do is to maintain absolute human um, freedom, um, absolute human free uh, choice. And if God knows the future exactly, there cannot be free choice. Right? If God knows the future because he has determined the future, there cannot be such a thing as, uh, as free choice. Now, this, uh, this view uh, is, uh, is popular today in the uh, 1990s and, uh, and up to 2012. Uh, this, this view has come back uh, into vogue again. It's actually a view that goes back to the 16th century. Uh, Louis de Moliner, uh, very fancy-looking chap, um, Spanish Jesuit priest, Uh, defender of uh, human libertarianism or free will. Uh, And his views were adopted more or less by the Arminians uh, of the 17th um, century. Uh, And he proposed a view uh, known as middle knowledge. Now, we're going down. We need oxygen. Hold your breath for five minutes or so because we we need to talk about middle knowledge for a few minutes. Uh, This uh, view has been resurrected of late by... uh, Christian philosophers and others, uh, Alvin Plantinger, for example, uh, has uh, resurrected this view and given it uh, some, some energy uh, at uh, Calvin College, the, the gentleman professor of philosophy at Calvin College. And, uh, and there are various advocates, and I've uh, given some names, John Saunders, for example, Gregory Boyd, William Lane Craig, uh, Clark Pinnock, all of these are very Uh, well-known names uh, and advocates of uh, middle knowledge. Let's see if we can define what they mean by middle knowledge. Um, First of all, there's something called necessary knowledge, page 12. Necessary knowledge. Uh, There's a classical distinction made between natural or necessary knowledge. Necessary knowledge is God's knowledge of himself and what is possible for him. Uh, it's sometimes called simple knowledge, scientia necessaria. Uh, this knowledge is essential to his being. Uh, it, in, it includes such things as the laws of arithmetic and logic. And then there's God's free knowledge, things that happen outside of himself. God's knowledge of things uh, outside of himself, not therefore essential to his being. Uh, it includes things like um, Austin is the state capital of Texas. Sinclair Ferguson owns real estate in Scotland. Derek Thomas has a dog named Jake and a snooty cat named Chloe. All of those things are true, but if they weren't true, it it wouldn't in any way impair the being of God. Uh, They're outside of him. They're uh, they're, They're knowledge of things outside of himself. They're only true because God has willed them to be true. Uh, But God wouldn't cease to be God if these things were not true. Now, um, 
Then Louis de Molina proposes a third thing called middle knowledge. Now, I'm not convinced that there is such a thing as middle knowledge, but let me see if I can, if I can explain to you what middle knowledge is. And it's an attempt to maintain um, a, a view of providence, a, a risk-free view of providence, where, where at least the broad strokes of the future are, are known, but where, where there is, uh, where there is uh, free will, uh, absolute free will. Um, God knows all, all possible futures. Look at the text on the bottom of page 12 and 13. Uh, let's just, for the sake of time, pick up the Matthew 11 text on, the, on page 13. Uh, you remember that Jesus uh, chastises Bethsaida and Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida and Chorazin, because if the gospel had been preached in Tyre and Sidon, where it wasn't preached, but if it had been, it's a hypothetical uh, possibility, if, if, if the gospel had been preached in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. Right? That's, that's Jesus introducing a hypothetical future. Right? It's, it's not a world that is actualized in any way. It's a hypothetical. If the gospel had been preached in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. Now, Molina suggests that there are, there are an infinite possibilities, an, in, an infinite possible futures, in which in one of those futures, you would make, in certain conditions, you would make a free, undetermined choice. So that choice is not determined by God in any way. It's just one possible future in which you made a choice. And God has actualized that future. Of all the possible futures out there, God actualizes that one where you made a free human choice. You following? There was an episode of Star Trek. And uh, it's episode 11, uh, it was called Parallels, uh, and Worf uh, returns from uh, a battleth uh, tournament, and, and he walks onto the, the deck uh, of, uh, of the s- spaceship, and, uh, and things are different. There's a, there's, a, there's a picture that's hanging differently, and all of a sudden, he, he, there's something there's something different about this, and, and what he has done is he's, he's crossed some kind of time-space fissure in which he's in a parallel universe, right? He's in another possible hypothetical uh, future. Uh, it was Molinism. Uh, this episode was all about trying to, uh, trying to portray in science fiction uh, Molinism uh, and data Uh, then goes on to explain, for any event, there is an infinite number of possible outcomes. Our choices determine which outcome will follow. But there is a theory in quantum physics that all possibilities that could happen do happen in alternate quantum realities. You know, Data spoke like that. And uh, you may not be a fan of Star Trek. Um, You know, the 800-pound gorilla in the room of Molinism is, why did God actualize that future in which you made a free undetermined choice because if I made the wrong choice in that future I want to say I, I want another future right let's do this all over again because because I want another future you cannot you ca- Molinism to me doesn't doesn't remove an aspect of sovereignty God actualizes that future 
I, I don't actually believe that Molinism is logically correct in the first place, but, but even if it were correct, it doesn't solve the problem of human freedom because God actualizes something. This, this future in which you make a decision is actualized by God, so you can't rule out an aspect of, of total sovereignty. God knows all things. Let's get back. Let's, let's ditch Molinism. It's a, it's a theory going nowhere, except to a parallel universe. Um, but what are, the, what are the pastoral implications here? And they're, they're stunning. They're actually quite moving. God knows trivial things. Well, it may be trivial to you. It's not so trivial to me. Um, it's trivial to Dr. Ferguson. He, he, he never thinks about this. But to me, even the hairs of your head are numbered. How trivial is that? I mean, seriously, how trivial is that? Do, do you count them? I, I don't buy combs. I don't have a brush anymore. I mean, I don't need them. I don't spend any money on uh, brill cream or all that fancy stuff. I don't, that's all in the past. It's all gone. It's finished. It's over. That kind of trivia, and God knows it, or a sparrow that falls in the street. Uh, it produces awe. Oh, the depths of the wisdom. Oh, the depths of the wisdom. God is, uh, God's knowledge of himself and of the world and the universe and of all possibilities, that knowledge, I mean, how many, how many gigabytes is it? You know, you get all excited about a new phone because it has twice the amount of memory on it. What's the size of God's, uh, of God's mind? How many gigabytes worth is it? Don't, don't try and answer it. You, you, you just fall down and you say, oh, the depths. Actually, that's, uh, you know, that is in part, in part what Job had to learn. He was asking all kinds of questions, but God never answered any of them. And Job, do you remember how Job brings himself at one point in chapter 40 of Job? He puts his hand on his mouth. He stops talking. Has God brought you to the place where you put your hand over your mouth and you stop talking? You stop answering back. Don't you hate that about children when they answer back? It's time to stop now. And actually, that's what Job had to learn. To stop answering back. And to be in awe of the omniscience of God. We're not forgotten. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And God knows our sins better than we do and still declares us just through his Son. Um, one of the most moving sermons on the whole series on First John that... Uh, Dr. Ferguson preached uh, last year was the sermon on 1 John 3.20 whenever our heart condemns us do you know that? do you know what that means? 
Do you get days when your heart condemns you? You're a Christian, you believe in Jesus, you believe the gospel, but your heart condemns you. And what does John say? God is greater than your heart. And he knows everything. He knows that you're a greater sinner than even you admit to being. And he still justifies you in Jesus Christ. You know, that's the beauty, isn't it? That's a beautiful thing. God knows everything. He knows sins that we, we, we don't even know. We've never even confessed them because we've never even seen them. We think we know how sinful we are. But God knows exactly how sinful we are. And still, um, he justifies us. Well, let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we thank you. Thank you for your, for your omnipotence and your omnipresence and your omniscience. And we pray that these things now would be uh, written deeply within our hearts and that we might respond with awe and worship and gratitude and love and faith. For Jesus' sake, amen.